Last week, we finished Isaiah 28. Isaiah 29 is actually one of my touchstone chapters in the book of Isaiah because what it does is it explains the process of exile, how that works from God's perspective. As we go through this, I am also going to revisit something that we talked about on Shabbat, which is the parable of the vineyard, and it fits in with Isaiah 29 quite nicely. So Isaiah 29, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feast run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. First off, Ariel, it could be lion. A standard Jewish name is Ari, which means lion. It's also obviously a nickname, if you will, for Jerusalem. And add year to year, let the feast run their round. The idea is that God's feasts are cyclical. We talked about that in the past. There's sort of three time horizons, if you will. The priests work in cyclical time. So their time horizon is Shabbat and the feasts and so forth. The king, if you will, works in what we would call linear time. And he just goes through things. And then the prophet works in historical time. So what the prophet does is places Israel within a historical context and then goes forward or backwards from the current time as necessary to make a point. So here, year to year, let the feast run their round is, if you will, priest time. And part of that is when we get into a routine, like my week revolves around Shabbat. My whole existence is organized on what I have to get done during the week to be ready for Shabbat. And it's just very routine, very cyclical. And so the idea here is that Ariel, Jerusalem, is sort of in a routine. And it isn't a good routine in this case. Verse 3, And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege work against you, and you will be brought low from the earth, and you shall speak. And from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost." And from the dust, your speech will whisper. And the idea here is obviously humiliation. If you've read the book of Joshua anytime recently, you'll notice that one of the things that happens as they capture the kings of the south and they store them up in a cave while they finish the battle. And then after the battle, Joshua brings all of his commanders back and they trot these kings out and have them lay on the ground and all the commanders put their foot on the neck of these vanquished kings. So the idea there is humiliation, and then from the dust your speech will be bowed down, your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. So Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and it will be a memory, but it will still have a voice. Verse 5, but the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. Small dust is a metaphor. Theoretically, dust on a scales changes the weight. If the scales are dusty, then the weight changes. However, small dust is regarded as, yeah, theoretically we know it changes the weight, but it's so insignificant that it's not worth messing with. That's 
the metaphor there. So what he's saying here is your enemies will be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind wind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. So what he's saying is you're going to have a multitude of foreign foes. But compared to what God is going to do with you, they are going to be like small dust. When God finally decides to move against you, all the problems that you thought you had are going to pale in significance. Verse 7, And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fought against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. Again, same metaphor. Once God finally decides to move, all of the things that have happened to you in the past are going to be forgotten like a dream. You all are familiar with that metaphor? You know, you can have really vivid dreams, and by the time you finish your shower, you don't remember what the dream was, you just remember that you had one. So the idea here is when God finally moves, all of the things that have happened in the past will be like a dream, which is to say, faded out, no longer seeming real. Verse 8, as when a hungry man dreams he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied, or when a thirsty man dreams he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fought against Mount Zion. All of these are poetic images of things that are insubstantial, things that are not worth remembering, etc. So these are by way of comparing what the Lord is going to do to all of the worldly things that happen. Various poetic metaphors. Verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your head, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. This is the process of exile. We have read about it in Isaiah chapter 6, where God says to Isaiah, Keep on speaking, but speak in a way that these people will not understand, lest they understand and turn and are healed. So the process of exile, once God decides that Israel is going into exile, is he does three things. The first thing he does is he closes their eyes, which is to say he removes prophecy. We've talked about the nature of prophecy, and this is going to get us into Matthew and some other places here. Remember I talked about prophets operate in historical time as opposed to priests who operate in cyclical time as opposed to the king who operates in linear time. So what a prophet does is he comes into Israel and he speaks to Israel in the context of what they are doing now and where what they are doing now fits in the context of both history and the future. That's the job of a prophet. 
And God sends a prophet into a situation with the intention that Israel will listen to the prophet and will mend their ways. And so the things that are prophesied to happen in the future will not come to pass because Israel has repented and mended her ways. That's the idea. However, all the prophets that make it into the book, with the exception of Jonah, don't get listened to. Lots of prophets floating around Israel. Remember in the time of Elijah, there are hundreds of prophets that are hanging out and so forth, uh, hid away in a cave, that kind of stuff. So there are lots of prophets in Israel. Those don't make it into the book. The ones that make it into the book, the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, and so forth, give prophecies that are not heeded. Therefore, the things that are prophesied for future are going to come to pass. And some of them they have not yet come to pass. Some of them they already have come to pass. So the first thing that God does when he decides, all right, you guys are going into exile. He has sent them prophets prior to that, and they have not listened. Therefore, once he decides they're going into exile, he stops sending prophets. And what is saying here in verse 10, he has closed your eyes, the prophets, and the metaphor of eyes there is a prophet enables you to see where you are in historical time. That's taken away from you. You can no longer see where you are. And he has covered your heads, the seers. The seers are wise men. This is the voice of the king. Remember, you have the voice of the prophet, the voice of the priest, and the voice of the king. Seers would be the voice of human wisdom. Don't do that. You'll put your eye out. That's human wisdom, right? Nothing particularly godly about it. Nothing prophetic about it. It's just you run around holding a pencil like this and you trip, you'll put your eye out. Don't do it. It's stupid. So covering their heads means that it takes away the wise from among them who would be able to say, stop that. It's going to be bad if you don't. And then the vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When you give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I can't, for it's sealed. And when you give the book to one who cannot read, he's saying, read this, he says, I can't read. And so what happens there is he closes scripture to you. Now, been years since I've taught this, but it's a good time to do it right now. I am of the opinion that Christianity and Judaism for the last 2,000 years have been operating with a sealed book. That's why you have 10,000 denominations who can read the same passage of Scripture and get dramatically different understandings of it. When I read this stuff, I read it in the context of Torah, and I think I understand it. But if I go to a Catholic priest and read the same passage of Scripture, he would get something different. If I were to go to a devout Jew and read that passage of Scripture, he would get something different yet. And what I'm suggesting to you is it's because we are dealing with a closed book because Israel is in exile. When we get to the end of this chapter 29, he describes the process of reversing that. One of the things that I have read in the Jewish literature is if every Jew in the world would just stop and do Shabbat properly, then Messiah would come when it is possible for them to get together and do everything right and repent, and theoretically at that point the exile would be over. Now, having said that, 
you have the constitution of the state of Israel. You have Jews from all over the world coming back to Israel. You have the messianic movement. The pastors of the messianic movement are mostly of my generation, born during and after the Holocaust. The reestablishment of Israel. And I will tell you, years and years ago when I first started this and first became messianic, I was on an internet discussion board called Prophezine and full of mature, Bible-believing Christians who really know their stuff, but they were seeing things from a completely different perspective than I was. And I would say, this is obvious what that's talking about. Oh, no. And never came to a resolution with any of them because they just didn't see it that way. And the thing that I am hoping and praying is places like this, where we're sitting around reading the Bible from the perspective of the Torah, I am hoping is the beginning of the reopening of the book. That's a hope on my part. That is not, thus saith the Lord. But what I'm saying here is Israel, first off, has prophets turned off, then has the wise men turned off, and finally the book gets closed, and then they go into exile. That's the process. Now, one of the things we talked about on Shabbat is Yeshua and the current exile. Yeshua starts off coming to Israel as a prophet. And his message is repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. And he goes through demonstrating his bona fides as a prophet. He heals people and all those kinds of things. He is operating as a prophet, and the times when he is duking it out with the Pharisees, he is acting as a prophet, which is to say to Israel, shape up or are you going to go into exile? And all of the passages where he's fighting with the Pharisees over points of the oral law and so forth should be seen in the context of an Isaiah or a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel coming and talking to the power structure of Israel and trying to get them to repent. And of course, they don't, so they're going into exile. We read this week Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is the watershed of Yeshua's ministry. Before Matthew 12, he speaks plainly. After Matthew 12, he speaks in parables. And so what's happening after Matthew 12 is this process of exile is beginning. And so he ceases to operate as a prophet in the sense of telling them plainly, repent. He is still a prophet, but he specifically says to his disciples in the context of the parable of the sower, which is in Matthew 13. It's given to you to understand, but it's not given to them to understand. And then he quotes Isaiah. Keep on speaking, but say it so they won't understand, lest they turn and be healed, because I've decided they're going into exile. So from Matthew 13 on, all of his speeches are in parables. I've taught the parables in the New Testament a number of times, and I will guarantee you I don't teach them from the same perspective as a good Bible-believing evangelical or Baptist pastor. I don't see them the same way. It is my hope that I'm not a heretic, I'm very serious. It is my hope that it's because the books are being opened. However, I am not so arrogant as to say that with any certainty. That's simply my hope. So let's look 
in this context then at the parable of the vineyard. And that shows up two places. It shows up both in Matthew and Luke. You can read it in Matthew 21, and you can read it in Luke 20. And what I want to do is I want to talk about this in the context of Yeshua being a prophet. So I'm going to read it out of Matthew, and I'm going to pick it up in 21:33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Then he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Clearly, from our perspective, the son is Yeshua. What I have always been taught is the vineyard is Israel and the wicked servants are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the poster children for the power structure in Israel that has become corrupt. I'll use Pharisees, but the corrupt power structure was larger than that. Sort of like today we would use the FBI as our corrupt power structure, even though it includes the CIA and some other people. I no longer think that's the case. The tenants are not the power structure of Israel, as is normally taught. I think that the tenants, in this case, are the powers and principalities in the spiritual realm. Now, why do I think that, you ask? So the next place you want to go is Ephesians 3, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Messiah, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The key here is there's a mystery that has been hidden by God up until now. So the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. So the mystery is for the authorities in the heavenly places. And the question is, what is that mystery? And to find that, you go to 1 Corinthians 2, and I'll pick it up at the beginning. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Yeshua Messiah and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Notice again, 
before the ages. This is a secret, hidden wisdom as opposed to a mystery, but it's the same idea. In Ephesians, he uses the word mystery. Here he uses secret and hidden wisdom of God, but both were decreed before the ages for our glory. Who's our glory? The church, because that was what he was talking about in Ephesians. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And the secret then is by the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, the Gentiles get to come in. That's back in Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. That's the mystery that's been hidden. And what Paul is saying is, if the powers and principalities in heaven had understood the consequences of the killing of the son in order to get the vineyard, by killing the son, what they wind up with, instead of just Israel to deal with, they now have all Gentile believers to deal with. Going back to the parable now, where you have the vineyard, you have tenants, the master goes to get the fruit of his vineyard, the tenants refuse to give it to him, to kill his servants, and then when he sends his own son to get some of the fruit of the vineyard, they say, aha, this is the heir. If we kill the heir, then we will become owners of the vineyard. The servants of the prophets, the heirs, of course, Yeshua. Remember I said that once Yeshua starts speaking in code, it's so that the people who hear it will not be able to understand it and take appropriate action so that exile will not happen. Well, if I were, and, and I say this foolishly, if I had been a Pharisee back there, I would think that that parable would sort of be aimed at me. Because remember, there's lots of parables that the Pharisees listen to and they say, well, he's talking about us. Right? And so if I were a Pharisee listening to the parable of the vineyard, I would say, he's talking about us. The genius of this is he's not talking about them. He's talking about the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. And they don't get it at all. What happened when we ate of the wrong tree is essentially we fell. We then became human shields for Satan because Satan is the one that tempted us to fall. God's ticked at Satan, but in order to get at Satan, he's got to go through us, and he doesn't want to do that. Now, as you read the Gospels, who is it that recognizes who Yeshua is consistently? The demons. I mean, you have the bit with the Gadarene, where the demons say, have you come to torment us before our time? And the demons all recognize who he is. The demons recognize that he is both a man and the son of God. As the son of God, he has power. As a man, he has authority. The only people who have authority on the earth are men because God gave it to us. He could take it back if he wanted, but he's chosen not to. I'm not suggesting there's something God couldn't do if he wanted to, but he's decided not to. So what happens when the son shows up from Satan's perspective is, aha, the heir has come to reclaim the vineyard. Let's kill him. Therefore, there won't be anybody to take the vineyard away from us, which is the earth. All of us are born mortal. Regardless of whether you actually have done anything bad or not, you are mortal because of what Adam brought into the world, mortality. 
We're all that way. Yeshua is not. Remember, he says, nobody takes my life from me. I'm going to lay it down. So what you have then in the air is an immortal being who has no fear of death, who is a man, therefore he qualifies as one to take authority over the creation. So Satan's perspective is, he's the heir, let's kill him, and then the vineyard becomes ours. And what it says in Ephesians is that the mystery is, by doing that, not only now does he have Israel to deal with as being in covenant with God, but he's got all the Gentiles now. So he's just made his problem worse. And it says in 1 Corinthians that had the principalities and powers realized the consequences, they never would have crucified him. This is by way of Yeshua speaking in parables. I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that you could go to any evangelical church and read that same parable taught, and I don't think they would get the same thing out of it. This is what I'm talking about when I say it is my prayer that the books are being opened. So all of this is by way of talking about the process of exile, which we were just reading about in Isaiah, talking about Yeshua's ministry, where he starts off speaking plainly and calling them to repentance. And then when they attribute the things he does to Beelzebul, he then switches into parables so that hearing they will not understand because at that point, it is too late for them to turn and be healed. Back to Isaiah now. We're all the way down to verse 13 in chapter 29. So what we've done is explain the process of exile, cutting off prophecy, which means that they can no longer place themselves in historical context, cutting off seers, which means that they have lost access to the human wisdom that would allow them to turn and repent, and then closing the book. So verse 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is as a commandment taught by men, therefore behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And by the way, drawing near with their mouth and honoring with their lips, that describes the situation in Israel at the time that Yeshua was walking the earth. I mean, that's the whole purpose of all of these things that Yeshua is saying to the power structure in Israel, is you guys are doing the form of the thing that is required of you, but you're doing it wickedly. Verse 15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, and whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Shall the thing made say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? By the way, this is the passage that Paul is referring to when he's talking about you know, the potter making vessels, some of them for honorable use and some of them for chamber pots. He's referring to this passage in Isaiah. And reading that from here makes sense because what's happened here is the vessel is arguing against the potter. And God is saying, what do you got, cornflakes for brains? doesn't work that way. Verse 17, is it not yet a little while? until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book. Now, we're coming at the second half of the chiasm. 
The sequence was prophets get shut down, seers get shut down, the book gets closed. So now we're coming back the other way, and the first thing that happens is the book gets reopened. So verse 18 again. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So what are the eyes? The prophets. We shut them down earlier in the chapter. Now we're opening them up and doing it in reverse order. So 19 again. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. By the way, if that doesn't describe what's going on in Washington today, what you have is people laying snares for those who reprove in the gate. In other words, those who try and call the powerful into account, they are laying snares called a perjury trap. That's what we're talking about. And by a word make a man out to be an offender. This is false witnesses. Fake news. Verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Now we're talking about the house of Jacob here, which is all Israel. We have talked about the house of Judah, the house of Israel, southern and northern kingdoms. Jacob is everybody. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed, nor more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Verse 23, when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. And what I was thinking that meant was we are all creations of God. We're the clay and he's the potter and he's made us all. I don't think so anymore. The work of his hands is the thing that he is doing with Israel. The shaping of Israel that he has done by the process of exile and all of the things that he has done to them over the years, the children that come out of that in the end are going to be the work of his hands because they will have been shaped by the things that God has done to the nation. This is what I'm talking about when I say the books I hope are being opened. Because as I sit in Midrash and talk to you people, all of a sudden it will be, dong, I never saw that that way before. And I am hoping that that is an indication that the books are being opened and we are coming to the end of this exile. But it's in God's hands, not mine. He's not going to consult me and ask. (laughs) 